All right. This week we're going to start chapter 3. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for your blessings upon us. Lord, you're always providing for us. You're always looking after us, protecting us. Lord, you're securing our future, or you have secured our future. And at the same time, you're dealing with our past, and you're changing us in the present. So we just thank you for all the good things you've done for us, and I pray that you'll help us to understand as we dig into your scriptures today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll read chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 today. Last week, we saw Ruth meet Boaz and how God was guiding her to find blessing. He was demonstrating his grace to her. And Ruth is a type or picture of us, the bride of Christ, and Boaz is a picture or type of Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, our close relative, our Goel. And God guides us supernaturally using natural means and circumstances so we meet him and come into relationship with him. It's like coming into his field. And last week we also met the unnamed servant who was interacting with Ruth and causing Ruth to be made known to Boaz. And that was a picture of the Holy Spirit. And we also saw multiple occasions where Boaz, a type of Christ, went out of his way to bless Ruth, where Ruth had no way of repaying Boaz. And this is a demonstration of God's grace. Also, Ruth was a stranger from an enemy nation. And like Ruth, we are also strangers and enemies of God. But God decided to love us and lavish his undeserved and unearned grace upon us while we were still in a very unlovable state as he woos us by his Holy Spirit to come into relationship with him. And then we can find redemption. And we're going to see that story continue to unfold today. So I'm just going to start reading in Ruth, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be, when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. So, just a small section today, but there's a lot in this. We'll start in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? So, the first word is then. So, what's it after? Well, Naomi and Ruth arrived at the start of the barley harvest at the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And now the barley harvest is finished, the wheat harvest is finished, and Ruth and Boaz have been kind of like hanging out together in these groups, like the women with the women and the men with the men, but sharing mealtimes. And over the last like 49 days, seven weeks, so every day they would hang out in the same field. They weren't huge fields. Remember, it was all hand-sown and hand-reaped. So they all worked together, the women following in a group behind the men, and they had a lot of opportunity to get to know each other as they worked together. I imagine it would have been like a close-knit community of workers, all in fairly close proximity to each other, and pretty much constant communication. Now, I think this is a good time to talk about dating, a little segue here, because we have in front of us here a great biblical example of how two people can fall in love. Now, what is meant by dating in today's culture? Well, in my opinion and my observation, it's hanging out together with just each other most of the time, 
with no accountability, no limits on physical intimacy, and with little or no commitment expected. So that's how I think of dating today. That's what I see going on around me. But what does the Bible say about getting together? How are people supposed to meet and get to know each other? Well, it would be nice if there was a good example in the Bible that we could look at and follow. Well, guess what? There is. There's Ruth and Boaz. They fall in love and they get married. So I'm going to contrast what Ruth and Boaz did with what happens in today's world. So I'm taking the time to go through this because Satan is using this lie, this deception, this dating thing, to cause many Christians to compromise and destroy their witness and to destroy the foundation of the family as well. There's a trail of broken relationships and single parents and many murdered babies as a result of modern practices of dating, which is really just another name for sexual immorality, and sexual immorality should not be named in the church. So, firstly, the first contrast, according to the customs of the day, Ruth and Boaz were not dating in the way we think of dating in a modern culture. They were not paired off as a couple with one-on-one time with each other. Rather, they spent their time together in the context of the group, the men and women who worked for Boaz in the harvest. And last week we learned, we read, that the girls, including Ruth, were in one group and the guys in another, and then they came together for lunch and for mealtimes. And so they all ate together but worked separately. And so there was always accountability. Now, the second thing is that from God's perspective, I think that this dating game, the things that we do, really work against forming healthy, lasting relationships. For many people, dating means the continual making and breaking of casual, romantic or physical-based relationships. Patterns that teach us more about how to end relationships than how to make them last. Now, why would I say that? Well, because these relationships are based on lust, not love. Now, what's the difference? You might feel like you're in love. How do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference between real love and infatuation? Well, love is selfless, but lust is selfish. If you're only in it for what you can get, for how it makes you feel better, for your own satisfaction, then it's lust, it's selfishness. But if you're in it for what you can give, then it's love, it's selflessness. So. In contrast to modern dating, Boaz and Ruth were soon married and were very much in love, in the true sense of the word, in that they were committed to each other and they respected each other. So commitment and respect. And the third contrast is that dating is a relatively superficial way to get to know someone. Each person in a dating relationship tends to put on a mask for the other person. They put on this false persona. And for example, many women have been deceived into thinking that a man is good and nice because he is nice to them in a dating relationship. Well, what do you expect? Of course he's going to be nice to her because he wants something. A better gauge to measure the other man or woman is to see how they act towards others in a group setting. Because sooner or later, that's how they're going to treat you. And I'll come back to that in a minute. So, in contrast to this isolation, Ruth and Boaz got to know each other quite well. Ruth got to see how Boaz treated his workers, his family, his friends, his enemies, how he dealt with conflict, all those things, really important things as far as character goes. And Boaz got to see how Ruth worked, how she treated Naomi, how she treated and interacted with the other ladies, and so he got to see what she was like as well. He got to know what Ruth was really like over those harvest weeks as they were working together. And just remember that Boaz was initially impressed with Ruth because of her kindness toward Naomi. So it shows the difference between today and back then, well, God's way and the world's way, of what are we looking for in a person? Are we looking for physical attraction, beauty, or are we looking for character? So Boaz and Ruth, they're looking for character. 
So I want to go through two main advantages of getting to know someone in a group setting. The first is that you aren't putting yourself in an awkward and dangerous position where you are exposing yourself to temptation and compromise, which will dishonor both people and hurt their and your relationships with God. So I want to show you or read with you 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13. It says, If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. I want to just explain that this promise only applies to you if you're walking with God. It doesn't mean that you can put yourself in a precarious situation where you know that your flesh is going to rise up and then expect that God's going to give you a way of escape. For me, it's like jumping in front of a truck and then expecting not to be hurt. And this was Satan's temptation to Jesus in Matthew 4, 5-7. to So I'm going to paraphrase it, but Satan goes, Hey, Jesus, jump off the highest point of the temple and God will protect you. You won't even stub your toe. And what did Jesus reply? The scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. i say that again. You must not test the Lord your God. And he was quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. So God will only protect us from unnecessary harm as long as we are abiding in him, as long as we are in his will. Now, just want to go through a biblical example of someone putting God to the test, and that is Samson. Samson put God to the test when he told Delilah about the secret of his strength. He deliberately put himself in harm's way, and God left him. Samson had his eyes put out. In the end, it was a good thing for his relationship with God, because that was his weakness, looking at women and lusting after them. Now, Jesus said in Matthew five, twenty-seven to 29 You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, With Samson, at the end of his life, Samson was a praying man, a P-R-A-Y-I-N-G. He was depending on God, and God used him. During his life, he was a praying man. He was a P-R-E-Y-I-N-G man. He was seeking women to satisfy his sexual desires. That was more important than his relationship with God. So, we want to be a praying man, someone who depends on God, and not a praying man, someone who's seeking to satisfy their desires. And God gives us this warning regarding the attraction of a man to a woman in Proverbs. It's Proverbs six twenty-seven to 28. Can a man scoop a flame into his lap and not have his clothes catch on fire? Can he walk on hot coals and not blister his feet? And there's many other warnings against sexual immorality in the book of Proverbs. Those who go down the wrong path are called fools and simple, as in you're not so bright. But I think the clearest passage or instruction concerning men and women and sex is given in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. It says, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So what does it mean by it is good for a man not to touch a woman? Well, it's a figure of speech. It's a part representing the whole, where here a touch represents sexual relations or sexual immorality. So consider the danger signs at a petrol station. They say no smoking and no naked flames or no sparks and no ignition sources. Why? Because a little fire, a little spark, will quickly lead to a much bigger and destructive fire and explosion. The sign doesn't say, no explosions allowed. (laughs) It doesn't have to. Because we all know what will happen if a person lights a match. It's very likely the whole place will blow up, killing everyone in the vicinity. And the same is true for a forest. The sign doesn't say, 
no wildfires or bushfires allowed, but rather no campfires. Again, we all understand that it only takes a spark from a campfire to ignite the whole forest. So that's the logic here, to part for a whole. Now, it's the same for the phrase, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Men and women are created with a sex drive. It's extremely powerful. It's like nuclear fuel. Beneficial if used in a confined environment, like a power plant, but extremely dangerous and destructive if it's let loose, like in an atomic bomb. So marriage is like the power plant. These very powerful desires are harnessed to bring warmth, love and unity to the couple, who can then be a blessing to others with their example of their unity and their love for each other, pointing people to Christ. But sex outside marriage does the opposite. I just want to share a story that a friend told me when I was about 18. This is something that I observed when I was younger. He was between 25 and 30, and he was engaged, and his fiancée was between 25 and 30 as well. He and his fiancée were leaders in youth group, working together with another married couple, and I looked up to both of them. You could tell they really loved each other, they were both strong Christians, but they put God to the test. They followed the ways of the world and dated the world's way. They ignored Paul the Apostle's advice, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. They had started to go down this slippery slope of desire, which starts with isolation, a look, a touch, a hug, a kiss, a longer kiss, more touching, more skin, and then usually sex. So they had lit the fuse. The fuse was pretty and exciting as it sparkled and burnt. But their sexual desire explosion was huge and their relationship was in tatters. They almost broke up. It affected everyone around them. Trust was receding, hearts were bleeding, sin was succeeding. They were in a world of pain and regret. Yes, they did seek God's forgiveness and each other's forgiveness, but the wounds were still there. They had to heal. Also, the opportunity to be a witness of God's love and purity to the young people in the youth group was gone, it was shattered. So the shock waves of this sexual desire explosion could be felt far and wide. Now, the second reason it's good to get to know the person in a group setting, aside from keeping yourself safe, is that you get to know how the other person treats others. You get to know their character. So, for example, how do they treat their parents? How do they treat their friends? How do they treat their enemies? How do they treat people they disagree with? How do they handle conflict? And this is really important because after the wedding day, when the honeymoon is over, that's when reality (laughs) sets in. There's no escape. There's nowhere to run. You have made your bed with that person and now you must lie in it for good or for evil, for good or for bad. There's no more special treatment. There's no more trying to impress because the other person already has what they were chasing. The mask is off and all the true intentions, attitudes, habits and behaviors will be made known. So, I want to, before we move on, give you some guidelines for healthy relationships. So, the first one for me, I believe is the most important, is let your first kiss be on your wedding day. Treat your fiancé as a sister. The person you're interested in to marry, treat her as a sister. I'm not going to call her your girlfriend or boyfriend, because I think that's a worldly term. I think that we should be saying, this is my friend, I love her or him, and we want to get married. Because boyfriend and girlfriend in today's world means someone who is sleeping together. That's how I see it. So, base your physical boundaries on what would be appropriate for a brother and sister. Now, is that my opinion or God's opinion? It's God's opinion. Not his opinion, it's his rule. 1 Timothy 5 verse 2. Treat older women as you would your own mother, and treat younger women, with all purity as you would your own sisters. It's very, very clear. Treat the younger women with all purity as you would treat your own sisters. In other words, just don't light the fuse and there won't be an explosion. The second thing is, fathers need to explicitly teach their daughters what God's will is for marriage and what to look for in a man. Many fathers give their daughter a purity ring. It signifies that I belong to Jesus and I will remain pure, a virgin and unkissed. Until my wedding day, fathers also need to teach their sons the attributes of a godly man so that they will both seek and attract godly women. 
Now, the third thing for healthy relationships is if you do spend time together, not in a group setting, then make sure you're in a public place so you can be accountable. Don't ever give the appearance of evil, 1 Thessalonians 5.22. And so allow your good reputation to be ruined by allegations which you can't defend against. So it's just common sense. The world will expect you to do what they do. So don't give them a reason to justify their evil behavior. And a rather extreme example could be staying overnight at your friend's house of the opposite sex or your fiancé's house. People will assume that you're sleeping together. You become a stumbling block to the unsaved and weaker believers, plus you're putting yourselves in harm's way. It's just not worth it. Uh, Number four, about healthy relationships and how to protect yourself. If you go away somewhere, take someone else with you, a chaperone. That's an old word. It just means someone that goes along with you and keeps you accountable. So, for example, Marissa and I wanted to go camping before we were married. So we went with my uncle. I slept in the vehicle with my uncle and Marissa slept by herself in a tent. We were fully accountable. Another example. We wanted to stay, Marissa and I wanted to stay a few nights with my sister who lived in the country. They only had one spare room, so I pitched a tent outside and slept in that. And we made it really clear to people around us that we were waiting until we were married. And one last thing. Some people will think, well, it's fine for you. It's too late for me. No. Finally, I would like to remind people that it's never too late to change. Marissa and I started well. For the first few months, we didn't even hold hands. But my Christian friends, my Christian friends, were asking me, have you kissed her yet? Well, eventually I caved. I did. I had intended to keep my first kiss for marriage, but I didn't. We started down the slippery slope of desire, but God convicted me before we got too far. I read again 1 Timothy 5 verse 2 and 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1 and remember the godly advice given by godly mentors. I simply told Marissa that we weren't going to kiss anymore and I was going to treat her like a sister until the day we were married, and that was that. As a result, our wedding day was beautiful. God restored the innocence and the you-may-kiss-the-bride kiss really did feel like our first kiss. <laughs> and I just want to point you to Lamentations three twenty-two to 23 The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is His faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. And that's what God did for us. Again, it's never too late to change. Every day is a new opportunity to change direction, to choose to abide in Christ and walk in obedience to the Father. Now, some might say, well, that's fine, but there's so much pressure. I've got these desires going, there's hormones. God's commands are God's promises. He will never expect or ask us to do what he won't enable us to do. He will never expect us to do what he hasn't given us the power to do. If he asks you to do something, then he will give you the power to do it. So simply step out in obedience and dependence and watch God work miracles in your life. Just confess, repent of your sin, then trust and obey. Never forget that we serve an awesome God whose power is unlimited and that power lives in us because God lives in us. You can put out the fuse and disarm the bomb of desire by simple obedience and submission to the Word of God. Again, I spent a fair bit of time on the whole dating issue because here we have, I think, the best example in the Bible of two people getting to know each other, falling in love, and then getting married and it just does so much damage to relationships and it destroys people's walk with the Lord because how can you be abiding in Christ if you're habitually sinning by committing sexual immorality with your girlfriend or boyfriend and it's just destroying the lives of many young people stopping them from growing in their relationship with God so let's move on the second part of verse 1 says my daughter shall I not seek security for you that it may be a well with you? Naomi wants Ruth to be married because back in that culture, when you're married, you're secure. You have a home. You have an inheritance. You have someone to look after you, to protect you. 
So Naomi is going to suggest to Ruth that she appeal to Boaz for marriage. Now, the word security in verse 1 here is the same word for rest in Ruth chapter 1 verse 9. And that's where Naomi told her daughters to go back to their homeland and find rest in the home of a new husband. And so this Hebrew word, which is um, manawach, M-A-N-O-W-A-C-H, speaks of what a home should be, a place of rest and security. In verse 2, Now Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not a relative? Again, it's a reminder, emphasizing that who did Ruth hang out with? She hung out with the women. Okay, It's a, a reminder of Ruth's wise choice to stay with and work with the young women. Now Boaz, is he not our relative? Naomi is reminding Ruth that Boaz was their family Goel, their kinsman redeemer, their close relative. And we're going to start digging into what the role of the kinsman redeemer is, the Goel is. So there's four things. So I'll just go through them quickly. So the first thing is that the kinsman redeemer was responsible to buy a fellow Israelite out of slavery. So to buy someone out of slavery. Leviticus 25.48 Second thing, he was responsible to be the avenger of blood to make sure that the murderer of a family member answered to the crime. That's Numbers 35.19 So you can see this is kind of like protection. Redemption. Third thing, he was responsible to buy back family land that had been forfeited. Leviticus 25.25 to redeem the land. So the first one was to buy someone out of slavery, that's to redeem the person. third one is to buy back the land, that's to redeem the inheritance. And the last one is he is responsible to carry on the family name by marrying a childless widow, and that's found in Deuteronomy 25, 5-10. We've read that before. So in summary, the Goel, the kinsman redeemer or close relative, was responsible to safeguard the persons, the property, and the posterity or the family line of the family. So, Boaz is the recognized Goel for the family of Elimelech, the deceased husband of Naomi and father-in-law of Ruth. And therefore, Ruth can go to him and appeal to him to take her in marriage, buy back the land, and basically experience redemption. Now, what would happen if Boaz didn't want to do this? If he said, nah, I don't want to do that, it's going to cost me too much. Well, Elimelech's family name would perish because he has no descendants. Family is important to God. God sees family as really, really important and he wants godly families to raise godly children. That's in Malachi. And we need strong families so we have a strong church. We need strong families, however, strong country. Family is the foundation, the building block of the church and the country. A church with many dysfunctional families will be a dysfunctional church. A country with many dysfunctional families will be a dysfunctional country. Now, in saying that, we expect dysfunctional people to come to us because the church is a hospital where people can come to get help. But to get help, we need to have some people, hopefully the majority of people with functional families, who are working together, submitting to each other, loving each other, so they can give help to those who are struggling. Verse 2, the second part, it says, In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So why was he doing that? Well, often the breeze would be stronger at night time, and they would throw the, the grain up with the chaff, and the wind would blow the chaff away, and the grain would fall back down. So they'd harvest during the day, and then we know at night time. And then they'll gather the barley and put that in a pile. And when their work was done, they would sleep on the threshing floor to protect the harvest from people who would want to come in and steal it. Because remember the book of Judges in a time where there's a lot of theft, there's a lot of immorality. It wasn't a particularly good society. Verse 3 and 4. It says, Therefore wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be, when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies, 
and you should go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. So just looking at the first part of verse 3, Ruth wanted to look nice and smell nice as she was seeking Boaz to redeem her. And anything else would have been quite disrespectful. So there's three things here which we can apply to ourselves as we, the church, need to do each day as we approach Christ. So wash yourself. If Boaz is a picture of Jesus and Ruth a picture of his bride, the church, which is myself and you, those who are saved, Paul says we are washed by the water of the word. The bride, the church, is washed by the water of the word. That's Ephesians 5. So the first thing we need to do as we come to Christ is wash ourselves in the word. There's nothing more important than keeping in the word day after week, after month, after year. Now, last week we talked about gleaning and how there are many similarities between gleaning barley and gleaning truth from the Word of God. Well, I want to just focus in on that a bit now as we're talking about washing ourselves with the Word of God. We should use Ruth's example to glean everything we can from the Word of God. So the first thing is that Ruth worked hard and allowed a lot of time to collect all this grain, to glean in the field. So we need to understand that the Bible is not fast food. It's going to require dedication and a willingness to study and persevere in that study. We need a good chunk of time free from distraction. It needs to be our singular focus. I don't know about you, but if I'm distracted as I'm reading the Word, then I just have to go back and start again because it's just gone. So having it on in the background while you're doing other things is great, but that's not a substitute for the time that we need to make for God alone, undisturbed. It's like your relationship with people. You need that one-on-one time where you can talk to them without distractions. You need that with your Heavenly Father as well. Also understand that listening to sermons is not reading the Word of God for yourself. Listening to sermons is great, but a very poor substitute for the real thing. We need to do our own gleaning and not rely on others to glean for us. God wants to speak to us personally, directly. We need to take the time to read his word for ourselves. Now the second one, Ruth had to stoop to gather every grain. We will only receive instruction and understanding by the Holy Spirit if we are humble and ask for understanding. The Bible is a spiritual book and can only be understood as it is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. The natural or fleshly or carnal or proud person who is dominated by the sinful nature will not understand. They can learn, but they will not understand. Ruth could only pick up one grain at a time. And for us, that's one truth at a time. It's little by little. We need to be patient. God's revelation to us is one grain at a time. One thing at a time, generally speaking. Uh, Ruth had to hold on to each grain and not immediately drop it. Now, it's easy to forget, so we need to concentrate. We can memorize scripture. We can put things on our fridge. We can do lots of things to help us remember. Ruth took the grain home and threshed it. Now, she's out of the field. She's not reading the Bible, so to speak. What is she doing now? She's meditating or chewing the cud. She's thinking about what she's just read. She's taking the time to stop and ponder what the passage or verse or word means or is saying. So the Word of God needs to be on our minds as we go about the day. We eat in the mornings, best I think, and then through the day we chew on it. And often, I know for me, God speaks to me at weird times as I'm thinking about what I read that morning. And those are the, oh yeah, moments, or the, um, yes, now I know what I need to do moments. Ruth took the threshed grain And we know that. Now, for me, this is like separating the truth from the lies. We need to have the correct meaning, interpretation, and application of each verse and passage. Now, today, there's a whole lot of incorrect meaning, interpretation, and application because people don't stop to think about it themselves. And this is where talking things over with others and reading commentaries and listening to sermons can help. But in my opinion... The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. 
learn to cross-reference other passages in the Bible on a similar subject and get the big picture from the Bible from several passages, and that will often give you a better understanding without having to go to the other things. Not saying don't, I do, but that is the first thing to do. What does the Bible say about this? And the last one is Ruth was nourished by the grain. And this is a beautiful result or fruit of gleaning from the Word of God. Our spirit becomes strong and healthy. We are transformed into Christ's image. We are useful for the kingdom of God. We have something to give to others. Our spirit has victory over the flesh. Remember that the dog you feed the most wins the fight. We have the spirit and we have the flesh and they're at war with each other. Which dog wins the fight is which dog gets fed the most. If we aren't feeding our spirit, then by default we are feeding our sinful nature, our flesh. And we will end up, over time, becoming weak and not being able to do what God wants us to do. Now, the second one there is anoint yourself. So it says, wash yourself and now anoint yourself. In the Bible, it's always referring to the Holy Spirit. Our lives must be under the anointing or control of the Holy Spirit. We are instructed in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit. And as Romans 8.5-6 says, we are either controlled by the Spirit or by our flesh. There's no halfway. It's one or the other. So I'm just going to read Romans 8.5-6 and then 12-13. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit Think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. So notice verse 6 there, it says, So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. So anoint yourself. And I'm continuing in verse 12 on Romans 8. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if, through the power of the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. So this is talking about the practical consequences of the choices we make. It's our choice. We can choose to anoint ourselves by submitting to the power of the Spirit. So the choice is ours each day. Will I surrender to God each morning, admitting that I can't live the life that God is calling me to live, and ask Jesus to do it for me, to live his life through me by being empowered by his Spirit and living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And you might recognize that as Galatians 2.20. It says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So notice I've highlighted there, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I can't do it, but God can. Now, the next thing there is put on your best garment. So the application here could be Isaiah 61.3, where it says, Put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness or sadness. One of the consequences of being filled or controlled or submitted to the Holy Spirit is that we will want to praise God, that we will want to give thanks to God, and that because we are submitted to God, we are able to submit to each other. And where does it say that? Well, Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. It says, Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, Be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And now if you keep on reading there in Ephesians, it starts talking about husbands and wives. So what's the instruction before Paul starts giving the instructions for husbands and wives. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. We can only do what God says if we are anointed with the Holy Spirit, if we are filled, controlled by the Holy Spirit. 
And another application, I'm just going to read Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. It says, Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So put off the old and put on the new. So living an anointed life means we can choose to put on our best garment and live a holy life, walking in humility towards others as we praise and thank our God for his goodness toward us. Now the second part of verse 3 says, And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was cheerful. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now, this is interesting. So I'm just going to go through the meaning of all these symbols laying at his feet, for example. So, why did Ruth go and uncover his feet and lie down at the feet of Boaz? Well, in the culture of that day, this was understood as an act of total submission. So we want to apply this to ourselves. When we come to Jesus, we come in an attitude of total submission. So in that day, this was understood to be the role of a servant to lay at their master's feet and be ready for any command of the master. So Ruth is presenting herself to Boaz as a servant, and that's how we need to present ourselves as well. We are servants, bond servants of Christ. If you read through the introductions to most of the letters, the epistles, they start, Peter, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And this is what Ruth is doing. She's coming to Boaz in a totally humble and submissive way. Now, I think it's important that we don't lose sight of the big picture here. Ruth came to claim a right. True? It's her right to be redeemed. That's the laws that God had put in place. Boaz was her Goel, her kinsman redeemer, and she had the right to expect him to marry her and raise up a family to perpetuate the name of Elimelech. But Naomi wisely counseled Ruth not to come as a victim demanding her rights, but as a humble servant, trusting in the goodness of her kinsman redeemer. She's basically saying to Boaz, I respect you, I trust you, and I put my future in your hands. So this is how we should come to Jesus. He has promised us so much, but our attitude towards his gifts and promises should be one of humble gratitude, not an ungrateful, unthankful, that's mine, give it to me type of attitude. The Christian life is all about laying down our rights and not taking them up. This is what it means to die to self. And that's what Jesus did, if you read Philippians 2. He laid aside his rights, his glory. Verse 4, he will tell you what you should do. Now, Boaz was a good man, a godly man, a man who, whom Ruth could confidently submit to, knowing that he would do what was best for her. Now, I want to apply this to marriage today. First, husbands. All right. In the marriage relationship, many husbands wish they had a wife who submitted to them the way Ruth is here. But do they provide the kind of godly leadership, care, and concern that Boaz showed towards Ruth and others? Now, for the wives. In the marriage relationship, many wives wish they had a husband who loved, cared, and treated them the way Boaz did towards Ruth. But do they show the same kind of humble submission and respect Ruth showed to Boaz? So, listen carefully. Husbands and wives need to focus on their own roles in the marriage and not criticize the other. We are all responsible for our own choices. Remember that husbands love their wives sacrificially as unto the Lord, if you keep reading in Ephesians chapter 5 there. And wives submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. So put simply, this means that we do it for Christ, not for the other person. 
Husbands, you don't love your wife sacrificially for her. You're doing it for Christ, first and foremost. Wife, you're not submitting to your husband for him because he's such a good guy. You're doing that because of Jesus. It's what he's asked you to do. You're pleasing him. You're pleasing Jesus, not your husband. You're a God-pleaser, not a man-pleaser. That's what it should be like. So putting this simply, it means that we do everything for Christ, not for the other person. The husband should love and the wife submit, regardless of what the other person does, because ultimately we are all either disobeying or obeying God's commands. Now, don't forget, we've already said it, but don't forget that God's commands are God's promises. We have the power to obey within us because Christ lives within us. When we stand as Christians before the beam of seat, the rewards judgment, we will not be able to rationalize our sin. Oh, but my wife was like this, or my husband was like this. How can I love her? Or how can I submit to him? No, we can't do that. Remember, only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. And I personally see marriage as a furnace, <laughs> as a place of refining, where two people are brought together and they are refined and they are made pure and whole if they are willing to submit to God. It's a hard road. And Paul says that it's hard being married in 1 Corinthians 7. You know, I wish that you weren't because it's difficult. It's a hard road, but the rewards are so worth it, both in this life and the next. And then verse 5, All that you say to me, I will do. So Ruth is humble and she receives the counsel of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And this is an example of submitting to one another. Those who are more mature in Christ should disciple the new believers. Often they will have a lot more wisdom. But there are times when God will speak to any believer, even mature believers, through other believers. And we need to be willing to listen to others. So when I need to make a decision, I first seek God. But I've also learned to make sure that I ask my wife and other Christians before making decisions because I know that we work together. Verse 7, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and we talked about that, why they did that because of the winnowing and the protecting from thieves. But there's an application here and it concerns the threshing floor. So in the field, Ruth was gleaning for herself. She was nourished. She was receiving. Boaz was giving and giving and giving. But at the threshing floor, Ruth gave of herself. And that's a big difference. Are you one who is still in the field, just taking all you can get? Oh, this is great. This is good. I love this truth. Or have you moved on to greater maturity at the threshing floor? So throughout scripture, the threshing floor speaks of separation and sacrifice. Separation, because this is where the grain was separated from the chaff. And sacrifice, there's several examples or types where we can see the threshing floor as a place of sacrifice. So probably the best example is Second Samuel chapter 24, where David purchased the threshing floor of Ornan. He had tried to take a census of the country of Israel, the nation of Israel, and God judged them, he disciplined them. With a plague, it swept through the country for three days, and thousands had died. Then David approached Ornan and said, I want to buy this threshing floor to build a place of sacrifice to God. Ornan offered to give it to David, but David replied, I would not give to the Lord of that which cost me nothing. That's 2 Samuel twenty four twenty four, And he paid the full price. And it became the place where the temple was built, where all the sacrifices were offered. Also, it was at the threshing floor where Gideon hid from the Midianites that God commissioned him for service, and that's in Judges 6. Gideon then sacrificed to the Lord. God was asking two things of Gideon, separation and sacrifice. Separate yourself from the idols of the land, and he cut down his father's Baal idols, his pillars and stuff. And then he said, Sacrifice, take a risk for me. Fight the Midianites with only 300 men. Lay down your life for me. 
So the threshing floor speaks of separation and sacrifice. Now, again, have you come to the place, have I come to the place where we are not simply in the field gleaning for ourselves, but at the threshing floor giving of ourselves? See the place where he lay. That's what Naomi said to Ruth. See the place where he lay. And it's a picture of what the angel said at the tomb. Go see the place where he lay. Go to the tomb and see what Christ has done for you. And Romans 12.1 from the Amplified, it says, I appeal to you therefore, brethren, and beg of you in view of all the mercies of God to make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted, consecrated, and well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable, rational, intelligent service and spiritual worship. So, again, when we see the place where he lay, when we start to understand all that God has done for us, it becomes very reasonable to go to the threshing floor and offer ourselves to him as a servant, submitting to him, trusting him, just as Ruth did. And we'll find out what happened next week. So, Father, I just thank you for what you've shown us today from your word. I just pray that you help us to not be conformed to this world, but rather be renewed by the transforming of our minds. Lord, the whole dating issue, I pray that we can be wise and we can avoid any sexual immorality. We can avoid anything that's going to draw us into doing the wrong thing, that's going to draw us into compromise. And Father, Lord, I pray that we can wash ourselves in the Word, we can anoint ourselves with the Holy Spirit, and we can put on our best garments. We can put off the old flesh and put on the new nature as we come to you each day and live for you and serve you and abide in you. So I just pray that you help us to do all these things. Lord, help us to lay our lives down as servants at the threshing floor. Lord, use us, I pray, and I pray that we will be completely submitted to you. Thank you, Father, for what you've done. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. And I pray that we will respond in love and thankfulness to what you've already done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.